There used to be a uh, chain of stores called the Good Guys. I don't know if they ever made it to Texas. But uh, you remember the Good Guys? Uh, on the West Coast, they started, and it was like Best Buy or like Circuit City, the Good Guys. I don't know if the Good Guys are still around. I don't know if, uh, if they're still in business or not. But we've been doing this study on the Kings. And if you're new give you just a brief intro to what we've been doing. In the Old Testament, um, you've got a lot of history on Israel and on Judah. After the first three kings of Saul and Solomon, actually Saul, David, and Solomon, the nation split into two kings, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom was called... My Bible split in half this morning. And I'm having trouble with it. No, I got a new one on my desk, and but I, I, I don't want to break it in until I finish the study on Kings. To be real honest with you. So, anyway, that's it's still there and it still works. It just needs some duct tape. But what was I talking about? Oh, the the Kings. So so you had the Northern Kingdom, which is uh, which is Israel, the Southern Kingdom, which is Judah. Uh, now, if you've been here now, you ought to have this down. All the kings in the north were wicked. They were all evil. They all wasted their lives. Uh, they didn't make a difference. They didn't contribute to anybody's life. They had, uh, they had excess. They had prosperity. They had stuff. They had uh, gold. They had silver. They had the whole nine yards. And their lives didn't make a hill of beans a difference to anybody in terms of eternity. Just a, just a waste. 20 of them in a row. In the southern kingdom, you had 20 kings. Out of the 20 in the south, eight of them were called good. Uh, to one degree or another. We've been looking at Hezekiah the last couple of weeks. Hezekiah was one of the good guys. Hezekiah was a man who had a heart for the Lord. And there's a lot of information on Hezekiah. His is a long biography in the scriptures. Uh, Hezekiah is a guy, when you look at his life and you look at the account that's in the scriptures uh, concerning his life, they, they tend to revolve around four crises. And the first night we looked at the crisis, and, and it's a crisis that we all deal with. The, the first crisis he had to deal with was the crisis of becoming his own man. Uh, there, there's a point where you're not a kid anymore. There's a point where, uh, uh, where you're out of school and you're getting your wheels under you. And you're deciding, all right, what decisions am I going to make? What, what's important to me? What kind of marriage do I want to have? Uh, do I want to be a man of God? Uh, all those issues. Uh, Hezekiah, interestingly enough, his father was a loser. His father was a man that knew the truth about God, but basically spent his life as a wasted life. He was self-centered. He went after other gods. Uh, he... Uh, uh, Hezekiah had some brothers that his father sacrificed in the fire as they were infants. It's amazing that Hezekiah even lived through that, but God spared his life. Um, some of you guys have fathers, and the last thing that you want to do is emulate their example. Because uh, maybe they cut out on you, maybe they were uh, uh, unfaithful. Uh, maybe they were abusers. In some way, shape, or form, what you have spent your life doing is looking at your father's life, and you've been the exact opposite. 
because you know the pain of what it's like to grow up in a home like that. Now, others of you were, were, were very fortunate and blessed by the grace of God because you had fathers that, uh, that loved you and, and loved your mother and gave you a godly example and showed you what it is to be a man. Well, you, you, you're, a, you're a blessed guy because uh, your dad was one of the good guys. Regardless of where your father was, um, we all have to decide what kind of man we're going to be. So that's the first crisis that Hezekiah had to deal with. Then the second crisis was the crisis of terrorism, was the crisis of war, because uh, the, the Assyrians came and camped on his door. And as we saw last week, these guys were nasty. These guys were wicked. These guys would uh, uh, take the leaders of another nation, and they would draw and quarter them. They would flay them. They would roast them. Uh, these guys were brutal. And he had to face these guys because they came and besieged the city of Jerusalem. Now tonight, we're going to look at another crisis. Because the crisis that's before him tonight is the crisis of sickness. Uh, Hezekiah had a terminal disease. He, he had to deal with, um, with what no man wants to deal with. Uh, what none of us want to deal with is being physically weak. Yet it's part of life, as you get older, uh, things start to break down. Uh, you buy a car, and you drive that thing and get some miles on it, and uh, maybe you put 60, 70, 80,000, you're going to have to, you know, you have some parts, you're going to have to take that sucker in and get some things fixed. You get that up to 100,000 miles, you get up to 110, 115, 120, you know you're going to have to do some major work somewhere because it's going to break down. That's how we are. We start breaking down. The more miles you got on your tires, the more you start breaking down. It's just life. Um, we know it's there. Sometimes we begin to break down. Sometimes we'll have a major, uh, we'll have a major setback physically when it's not supposed to happen. Because see, in our minds, we've kind of got our lives laid out and we've got a kind of a rough course laid out. And yeah, you figure maybe, you know, you, late 60s, something like that, 70s. You know, you're going to start dealing with some physical issues. Sometimes you deal with physical issues before that. That's what happened to Hezekiah. You'll turn to Second Chronicles 32. We're going to look at this crisis of sickness that made him, uh, and this was a terminal sickness. This was a terminal disease the, the doctors had done all the tests. They looked at the blood. They didn't, you know, the stuff that they did, their equivalent of what we do today, and he was in bad shape. What's interesting about his situation, if you look at 2 Chronicles 32, verse 24, it says, In those days Hezekiah became mortally ill, and he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord spoke to him and gave him a sign. Now, you've got to back up. To verse 24 because it says in those days and the question is in what days well interestingly enough the days that it's referring to are the same days as when he was facing the Assyrians last week we looked at the Assyrians the fact that they besieged the city there was no way he could take these guys apart from the power of God uh, you, you just you just put a pencil to it he didn't have he didn't have a chance of defeating these guys. Uh, he was overwhelmed. He was outnumbered, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, 
what he does, he goes before the Lord. He got in this letter blaspheming God. He spreads the letter out. He prays. And the Lord took care of these guys. There were almost 200,000 of them. And the next morning, uh, they were dead. Uh, God went to battle for him, and God fought for him. But while he is a face, while he's facing the Assyrians, while he's in the while he's in the crisis of war, he's also in the crisis of a terminal illness. And we touched on this just for a minute last week, but tonight we're going to drive a Mack truck through it because there's a principle here. Because you see, you see again in 24, in those days, what days? When he had a crisis of battle, huge crisis that threatened his life and threatened the existence of the nation, he was in a major league crisis. Someone has pointed out that the Chinese word for crisis, you know, the Chinese, their, their, their letters are, are almost pictures. And the word for crisis is comprised of two other words in Chinese. Uh, the word danger... And the, and, and the word opportunity. Those two words in Chinese make up the word crisis. Because when you, th- and when you think about it, that makes a lot of sense. Because usually when you're in a crisis, there's some kind of danger. Uh, you're threatened. If, if you weren't threatened, there wouldn't be a crisis. If you weren't in danger, there wouldn't be a crisis. It can be a financial crisis. It can be a health crisis. Uh, it, can be, uh, it can be a number of things. When you're in a crisis, you're in danger, and you're vulnerable, and you don't have the defenses to fight it off. Uh, You're threatened, quite frankly. Uh, But you know, almost always, in fact, if you're a believer, it's not almost always. If you know Christ, it's always. When you're in danger, there's opportunity. Uh, You say, what do you mean opportunity? Well, there's an opportunity to trust God. There's an opportunity in the midst of your anxiety to do what Hezekiah did and spread out the letter, to write out what the difficulty is. What does Psalm 42 say? It says, why are you in despair, O my soul? It's an interesting phrase. Why are you in despair, O my soul? You know what what he's doing there in Psalm 42? See, sometimes when you're in crisis, you're verging on despair. Sometimes when your life is falling apart, you're, you're absolutely verging on depression to the point of despair. So what do you do in that situation? Well, what you do is that you time out and you say, Lou, what do you need? Uh, Steve, is it Freeman? Freeman? Yeah, you, you got a little kid that's sick. So, all right. So what happens when you have a situation like this? What, what, what happens when, when you're in a crisis? Well, you've got danger. And so when you're in danger, the anxiety goes up. Because no matter what kind of uh, situation it is, you look at your resources that you can bring to bear. And if you're in crisis, the resources that you've got, there's no way in the world they're sufficient uh, to meet the crisis. So you're in danger. We've all been there. We've all experienced it. But there's opportunity. What kind of opportunity? Opportunity to trust God. There's, and, and I'll tell you what else. There's opportunity for God to show his goodness. There's, I'll tell you what else there is. There's opportunity in crisis for you to grow. There's, there's opportunity in, in crisis 
uh, to deepen in your faith. We don't want crisis. We don't like crisis. We try to avoid it. That's just human nature. I heard a guy uh, recently talk about his year, and uh, he said, you know, my wife and I, have, we've never, our marriage has never been better. Um, in my business, I, uh, I've never made as much money as I made this year. I mean, I've never made that much money. I, I, it's so much money, I, I, I don't know what to do with it. That's how much money I've made this year. Marriage is great. Health is great. Ran a marathon. Backwards. Uh, my kids are, all my kids are doing great. All of them. All of them. They're just off the charts. 4-0, everything, everything's, we, we, built a, we built a lake house. Bought a boat. Traveled to Europe. Spent Christmas in Hawaii. And you know, this year, I've drawn closer to Christ than I've ever been in my entire life. I've never heard anybody say that. <laughs> have you? I never have, personally. But here's what I've heard guys say. This has been the worst year, business-wise, I've ever had. In fact, I, I don't even know, I don't know how we're going to make it through the month, honestly. We could go down, we, we could go down in the next five, six, seven days. Uh, my wife and I, we've been married 30 years. But I'll tell you what, we've been at, we've been at each other's throats. It's like, it, it, it's like we, we, I'm on AM and she's on FM. And, and for some reason, we just don't ever see eye to eye. All we do is fight. Uh, there, there's, there's no romance. There's no conversation. Uh, uh, quite frankly, she verges on being emotionally dead at times to me. Uh, my kids are in trouble. I got a kid. I got a kid in rehab for the third time. Uh, I got another kid that's basically flunking out of school. Uh, my daughter's going out with a guy that I can't stand. Uh, but I'll tell you what. This past year, I've drawn closer to Christ than I've ever been before. Have you ever heard anything like that? We hear it all the time, don't we? Because, see, that guy is in crisis. He's in crisis. Is he in danger? Yeah. Yeah, he's in danger. But there's also great opportunity. See, it's the crisis times that move us close to the Lord. Do you know, guys, we could not handle uh, unbridled prosperity? You know, you got these guys on TV, these, these guys with the hairspray and the, you know what I'm talking about? You got these flakes that are always talking about prosperity theology. I saw this guy a couple nights ago, and he's, I've talked about him. He's the guy that's, God told him to get another jet. He's got one already, but he's, and at the end of his deal, he, he shows this citation and, you know, you know, we're trusting God for, you know, 8 million people, $1,000, we'll buy this jet. It's some ridiculous, anyway. And all this guy ever talks about is prosperity. It's all he ever talks You can't handle unbridled prosperity. I can't either. The way we think we'd like, we, we would like life to go, it'll ruin you. Because that's the first guy. When everything is going great, when everything is cruising, when, when the money's flowing, when there are no health issues, when there are no relations, you can't handle that, and I can't either. That's what Solomon had. And Solomon got all screwed up. 
up. Can I, can I mention something about the crises that we deal with in our lives? God sends them. God brings them. God ordains them. Uh, you say, well, hey, wait a minute, I'm going through some pretty st- st- tough stuff. Well, you know what? God sent it to you. I think Thomas Watson said, whatever the trial, it is God who sends it. What about Job? Did Job go through some trials? You bet he did. But when Job had all those things happen to him, he tore his clothes, he says, the Lord gives, and the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. Uh, You say, yeah, but it was Satan that did that. Yeah, but Satan had to go to the Lord and get permission. God signed off on what Satan was going to do in Job's life. And was Job in crisis? Yeah, but God was behind the crisis. Why? Because God wanted to test Job. God wanted to show his heart. And after he'd taken, through, taken him through the difficult time, and after he'd taken him, taken him through the test, all that he lost, God gave back to him seven times greater than anything he'd had before. So there's hope. See, that's why there's not just danger in crisis, but there's opportunity. There's opportunity to grow. There's opportunity to become a stronger man in Christ. Hezekiah is sick. Uh, he's, but he's just not sick. He's fighting the biggest enemy he's ever fought in his life. So here's the principle. Principle is this. Trials tend to come in sets of twos and threes. That's the principle. Let me say that again. Trials or crises, if you want, they tend to come in sets of twos and threes. If you ever drive down Pacific Coast Highway in California, that's where I'm from. That's where I grew up. And we were out there over Thanksgiving, and I'm driving up Highway 1, and then I pulled off, and I'm at the Pismo Pier. And uh, people are lined up because there are surfers out there in the water, right to the uh, right of the pier. And, and sometimes you're just driving along highway, and you'll see these guys just sitting out there, and they're kind of bobbing up and down, but they got their backs. Say, here's the beach. They got their backs to the beach, and they're looking out over the horizon. And you know what they're looking for? They're looking for waves, looking for a swell. Because, you see, waves come in sets. That's how waves come. So you, you'll have a set of waves. You might have, you know, 10, 12, 15 waves. One right after the other, right after the other. That's why those guys right away, they come in, you know, they, they ride it, they come down, and boy, they're paddling. They're paddling back out. Why? Because they want to catch. Maybe they want to get two to three waves in a set. But then what happens is, you know what happens? It's calm. No waves. Kind of get a breather. Kind of get their breath. So they turn their backs to the beach, and they're looking out on the horizon, and they're waiting for the next set. That's the Christian life. There are times in life where it's calm. There are times in life where where there are no waves. Not not really. Not not that everything's perfect, but some of you guys, you're, you're, you're in between sets right now. Things are going pretty well for you. You know, job's going well, marriage. Thank God for that. That's a gift from him. Now, recently, you know, you look back over the last couple of years, you've been through some things. Right now, there's a period of calm. You know what I'd suggest you do? 
I turn your back towards the beach and start looking out in the horizon. Because what's going to happen is some waves are going to come your way. They're probably going to be a little bigger than the last ones. You see? Now, why does God do that? God does that because he wants to conform us into the image of his son. If it's always calm, it's always peaceful, everything's always going our way, we're not going to grow. We're not going to mature. It's the hardship. Count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various waves. It's not what it says, but it's the idea. (laughs) Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If the truth were to be told, what we'd like to be do at the beach, we'd like to be out there on the sand at our perfect weight, you know, with a perfect tan. We never burn. Our wife has no cellulite. Everything is perfect. That's, that's kind of how we want life. It's not going to happen. Not on this earth. Now, that's coming. But Jesus said, in the world, you'll have an easy time. I love that verse. (laughs) Got it on my refrigerator. Nah. In the world, you'll have tribulation. Just part of it. We know it. When you have kids, you know they're going to have tribulation, but you still have them. You see, that's just part of life. It's how we grow. We're going to have crises. Uh, They tend to come, crisis and trials tend to come in twos and threes. That's how it works. That's where some of you guys are. So you're not just battling on one front. You're battling on two or three fronts at the same time. And, 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 and so you're exhausted. You're emotionally worn down. You begin to question if God's on your team. You wonder if he's forgotten you. You're absolutely, you're shot. You compare yourself to all your friends. They're not struggling with what you're struggling with. But here you are, and you're going down for the count. That's where Hezekiah was. He had the Assyrians outside the wall, and he's dying of a terminal illness way before he should die. We, we, uh, we all look back on Winston Churchill as a great leader. You go into Jim Dobson's office, he's got Churchill mementos in his office because he thinks uh, Churchill's a great leader. Uh, you go into the Oval Office, I understand that George Bush has got a small bust of Winston Churchill uh, in his office. There's a, there's a store in New York City called uh, Churchill at Chartwell. Chartwell was uh, Churchill's home for 40-some years down in Kent, just south of London. You can visit it. You had a chance to do it this year. Uh, there's a store in, in New York City, and all they have is Churchill stuff. That's all they sell. And they've been in business a long time, and they do pretty well. Why is that? Because we all look back on Churchill and say, now there's a leader. There's a leader. For my money, greatest leader in the 20th century. Uh, Got a bunch of appeasers in England. They're all willing to sign off. Joseph Kennedy's willing to make a deal with with Hitler. You see? Don't get me on that. But, But that's just the truth. And he's the ambassador to England, you see? Everybody's an appeaser. Chamberlain's an appeaser. And Churchill's standing up and saying, we got to take him on. But where is, where is Churchill when Hitler is coming to power? Where is he? He's in the political wilderness. He's down at Chartwell. Uh, 
in 1929. Um, a lot of people, they think about Churchill, and they think the guy, the guy was wealthy because um, he came from wealthy family. But in England, they had a concept called primogenitor. And the concept of primogenitor is that um, the firstborn son gets everything. Everything. Now, the biggest castle in all of England, even bigger than Buckingham Palace, is at Blenheim. Uh, it belongs to the Duke of Marlborough, who was Churchill's great, 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 great grandfather. Now, his father, Randolph, was not the firstborn in his generation. He was the thirdborn. So you know what his father, Randolph, got? Not much. A little bit of petty cash. Uh, his father died of syphilis, uh, was a carouser and a drinker, and basically left Churchill nothing. So Churchill spent his whole life in debt, enormous debt. Uh, but in 1929, in May of 1929, he was able to work out some long-term publishing agreements on multi-volume series with publishers that would keep him busy for the next eight, nine, ten years. And in one month, they sent him checks for $70,000 in one month. Now, that'd be a good month right now. But in 1929, it was unbelievable. Churchill took that money. He had finally reached his goal of financial independence. He wrote a letter to his wife saying, we have finally achieved my heart's desire. We are now financially independent. He took every dime of the 70000 and put it in the American stock market. And as Paul Harvey would say, <laughs> you know the rest of the story. So a few months later, what happens? He's cleaned out. He loses everything. That was a great blow to him. A couple years later, maybe 18 months later, he was elected back to Parliament, but for the first time, he did not have a cabinet position. Uh, he was not appreciated. He was an outcast. Uh, he, he, yes, he was elected, but he was put out in the political wilderness, and he lost his place of influence. Uh, he started to go through a deep, deep depression. He had some friends in America that invited him to America and to Canada to take a tour at their expense. So he toured Canada from east to west, went down the coast, California, went down Pacific Coast Highway, went down to L.A., uh, toured United States and Canada, winds up in New York City. He's walking outside of his hotel to cross the street in New York City, steps off the curb, looks the wrong way, and a taxi cab hits him going 35 miles an hour. Uh, almost killed him. They rush him to the emergency room. He has no cash on him. They don't know who he is. Um, he almost died in the emergency room until his wife could get there. Uh, while he was in that hospital room recovering, uh, she wrote a letter to her son, their son, Randolph, uh, uh, about Churchill and what it was that he was dealing with. Um, 
what, what she basically said was that those events, well, here's what she said. Last night, he was very sad and said he had now in the last two years had three very heavy blows. First, the loss of all that money in the crash. Then the loss of political position in the conservative party. And now this terrible injury. He said he did not think he would ever recover completely from the three events. Oh, and at the same time, there was a British delegation going to Russia, and they were having dinner with Stalin, and he was asking at dinner who the up-and-comers were in British politics, and they mentioned some names, and then he said, well, what about Churchill? And Lady Astor said, Churchill, huh, he's finished. Churchill wasn't finished. Um, he was just in a crisis. These trials, these crises tend to come in twos and threes. And because they come in twos, see, if it was one, if it was one, uh, you could fight it off. You could, but, but see, then you get hit on the other side. And then you get hit on the other side. And what it does, it threatens, it, it, it robs you of your hope. You begin to wonder if God cares. Turn with me to Psalm 77. I, I, see, this is what Hezekiah was dealing with. We read these guys. We read the print on the page. And what can happen sometimes is that we just blow over their lives and these events, because we know how it turned out. I mean, we're reading the whole story. God intervened on the Assyrians. Great, wonderful. God took care of the Assyrians. But, but see, this guy's living it every day. He's dealing with it every day, like you're dealing with it. Like you're working your way through it. Psalm 77. This is a man in crisis. My voice rises to God, and I will cry aloud. My voice rises to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I sought the Lord. In the night, my hand was stretched out without weariness. He's seeking God because he's in trouble. He's in great danger. Now, now look, look at 77 verse 2 here. He says, my soul refused to be comforted. See, when you're hit on two or three fronts at the same time, what happens is you get worn down. You know when a defense is on a field too long and there's a team and they're doing a 95-yard drive and, and, then, and then they come back and they do an onside kick and they're doing another one? Well, that defense is sucking for air. They're in trouble. They're whipped. That's where this guy is. The, the, the crises can absolutely uh, exhaust your physical and emotional energy and you get to the point where you're in such anxiety internally you can't sleep at night. And then he says, my soul refused to be comforted. There, there, there is no salve. There is no antibiotic. There is nothing that's going to fix this. Look at verse 3. You'll see how, how, how far gone this guy is. When I remember God, I'm disturbed. Now, what are you supposed to say? What are you supposed to say? When I remember God, I'm encouraged. That's what you're supposed to say. Well, not if you're real. This guy's in such trouble. When I remember God, I'm disturbed. Why is he disturbed? Because I don't know why the heck you let me get in this situation. I mean, what's the deal here? I'm not against you. I'm for you. You ever had that happen to you? 
You're not against God, you're for God. You're trying to honor God. You're trying to be a man of integrity, and all this stuff starts happening to you. What the heck is going on here? So when I remember God, I get, I get hacked off. I get angry. He goes on and says, when I sigh, and boy, that's what you do. There are times all you can do is sigh. Uh, then my spirit grows faint. Look at verse 4. Uh, you have held my eyelids open. Boy, that's descriptive. I can't sleep because of you. Because you're not giving me any answers. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. You ever been there? Yeah, most of you have. This guy's just being real honest. This is where Hezekiah was. Then he asked some questions, verse 7. Because he's got all this emotion. He's dealing with all this stuff in his gut. Will the Lord reject forever? And will he never be favorable again? Because, see, that's how you feel. You feel that God will never be good to you again. You feel that God will never cut you slack. You feel that you'll never catch a break. That's how you feel, because that's where you are. Has his loving kindness ceased forever? Has his promise come to an end forever? Has God forgotten how to be gracious? Why would a guy say that? Well, because I don't see him being gracious to me. I mean, on every front that I look, it's fallen apart. Or has he in anger withdrawn his compassion? Then I said, it's my grief that the right hand of the Most High has changed. This is where this guy is. I I mentioned last week that about 18 years ago, um, I went through a a depression. It took me a couple years to come out of. And actually, it wasn't 18 years ago. It was... um, um, it was 23 years ago. But I, the last time I remember talking about it was five years ago, <laughs> to be honest with you. But I started adding that up, and I had some emails from some guys. And, and basically, a couple of guys, well, well why did you go through a depression? What was that all about? Um, well, it's because... Um, Crises and trials tend to come in sets of twos and threes. I was a rookie pastor, and uh, it was my first church. First Sunday I was there in Northern California, we had 58 people. And I didn't know what the heck I was doing. But uh, we started, and that's not the Bible Belt up in the Bay Area <laughs> of San Francisco. We were, 20, we were 20 miles south of San Francisco. Not a lot of Southern Baptists up there, you know? Not a lot of Baptists, not a lot of Christians, kind of a tough area. Highly liberal, highly Roman Catholic. Um, You know, they're not real big on the Bible up there. But that's where I was, and, you know, young guy and getting going. And and, uh, we started, uh, we didn't have a building, you know, typical thing. And and we started to have a little bit of growth. And anyway, we had a little bit of staff. And what happens, every time I I, I would hire a staff guy, it didn't work. And for different reasons, whoever I hired, I'd wind up spending more time trying to help them. But we had these people, and anyway, this went on for several years. And there was a point where, I'm going to give you the real short story, where I decided, I said, you know what? I think I've done what I can do here. 
And I thought about it and prayed about it for a year. And I decided I'm going to resign. I'm going to leave. And I had some guys say, well, you know, you shouldn't do that until you know where you're going. And I thought, well, it'll work out. I mean, I'm giving you, there, there was a lot of process in this. But it got to a point where I was so worn down, uh, and I was young and I was immature, and I was cocky, to be honest with you. And I just kind of figured, well, you know what, something will work out. And so I resigned. And, um, and I, right away, I had a church call me and interview me and all that, and uh, I thought, man, this, see, this is going to work. I knew something was going to work. And man, it was all green light, everything, and then I never heard from him again. Yeah, I was kind of surprised. And then another church called me in another state, and hey, we'd like you to come. And so I'd start talking, go through the process, and man, it looked like this is going to happen. And uh, I never heard from them again. That happened seven times in a row. During that time, we ran out of money. We had to move out of our house. I had to sell Mary's car just to make it. Um, uh, I remember at Christmas time, I had to go back and get my job I had in college in the summers driving an air freight truck, making minimum wage. And I had two kids. That was tough. Nothing wrong with driving a truck, but I just didn't think that's what I was supposed to be doing for the rest of my life. And what happened was uh, nobody wanted me. And, and I thought I'd had no problem. I'd, I'd have no problem finding a church. Well, they just didn't, no, no, they weren't interested. They weren't impressed, quite frankly. So you're not our guy. And uh, this went on for 11 months. And uh, I, um, and I'd gotten, I'd gotten us into some, I'd, I'd made a bad move, and I'd really put us in, in a bad situation, a real bad situation. Um, um, and then I started dealing with my self-worth because I wasn't doing anything. When you're not working as a man, you have uh, issues because we get our self-worth from what we do. If we're not producing as men, we get, we get real discouraged because that's what we're supposed to do. And we begin to question ourselves. And that was, that was a tough time. And that's when I started to deal with this depression. And that's when I found out about Psalm 77 because I felt like God had forgotten about me. And I didn't understand what he was doing. And everything that I tried to do to make it work, I'd hit a concrete wall. And, uh, uh, and this went on for 11 months. I mean, we just about lost it financially. But there was this one little church that kept calling me, and I kept telling them no because I didn't want to go there. I'd go anywhere but there. I remember the first time they called me, and I was real nice to them. Uh, the average age, I was 31. The average age in the church was over 70. They were landlocked. It was a small church. It was a dead church. I knew I couldn't. The first time they called me, I was real nice. I hung up the phone, and I said to myself, I'd never go there. <laughs> well, um, and in fact, towards the end of the 11 months, they called me back, and they've been without a pastor. They said, would you just preach for us on Sundays? And I said, well, I'll do that. And so I did it for about two months. And uh, I had a church in another state call me. And they flew me down. And these guys, it was really interesting. 
because I, I mean, we, we, we were just wiped out financially, and I mean, I, it, it was terrible. And I sit down with these guys, and I'm talking to them, and, getting to know, and, they, and then the next day they said, we'd like you to come, and we'll pay you this much, which I couldn't believe how much they'd pay. And, uh, and, and, you know, they'd asked me about some things, and they said, you know, you guys need, we'll, we'll just buy you a car. Uh, and we'll take care of this. Oh, and, and, um, and we'll give you X amount for moving expenses, which is about three times more than what I'd need. And, uh, and I'm thinking about that. And then um, went back, and I'm pondering it, and, and I'm just not sure, and I told him no. Because I, I wasn't, I, I, you know what? I'd already screwed up once. I didn't want to screw up again. But then they called me back, and they asked me to fly down one more time, and I did. And, and they said, well, here's what we'll do. We'll raise that salary, and we'll do the car, and you, but um, we'll also give you the down payment for a house. They weren't going to loan it to me. They were going to give it to me. And I said, well, thanks, Mr. Trump. Uh, I, I appreciate that very much. Now, you guys understand, understand something. We were really in bad shape. And I remember that night going back to where I was staying, and uh, I was going to meet with them in the morning. And it was all very, very, if I had said yes to those guys, all of our difficulty would have been over like that on the surface. But you know what? In my gut, I knew I wasn't supposed to go there. I knew it. And the next morning, oh, and by the way, see, while I was there, Mary was in the hospital in Atlanta. Now, why was she in the hospital with Atlanta? Because she went to visit her folks, and as she was flying to Atlanta, she had John on her lap for five hours, and she developed a blood clot. And with everything else that was going on, her dad called me the next day and said, Mary's leg is swelled up three times its size. So she's in the hospital, can't get out of the hospital. I'm meeting with these guys. I can't pay the hospital bill. It's just total chaos. And I called her on the phone, and I said, I'm going down there, and I'm telling them yes. And I got down there, and I couldn't tell them yes. That's what you call a test. I told them no, and I called Mary, and I said, Mary, I can't come here. Just before I went down there, the guys at the little church, the old church, that I didn't want anything to do with, they'd asked me if I please wouldn't come. And I said, I can't come. i got to go down and meet with those guys Wednesday. Well, I meet with them Wednesday, and that's when I'm blocked in my spirit. I can't tell them yes. So I leave there. I don't know what's going to happen. I fly to Atlanta. Mary's in the hospital. we got little kids. Everything is in chaos. And uh, I'm in that hospital room with Mary, and I said, Mary, you know what I think? I think I'm supposed to go to that little church I don't want to go to. And she said, you know, I, I think that's what we're supposed to do. I said, but I have told them no so many times. And I told them last Sunday, no for sure, no in concrete. And uh, I, she said, why don't you just call them? So I called them. And, I, and, and basically, him and I hollered, and I said, you know that meeting I was in Wednesday night? Um, I told them no. And the guy there and said, you know, Steve, I'm really glad to hear that because we'd called a special meeting for prayer 
And we were, there were about 50 of us praying Wednesday night that you'd get down there and say no. Because we think you're supposed to be here. And I said, but I don't want to go here. I don't want to, no, I didn't say that. But you know what? I really didn't want to go. And, and that's when I hit my depression, was going to that little church. Because I knew I couldn't make it grow. And you know what? I never did. But God had some lessons for me to learn. And Mary, uh, one of the things they said because of her health, they said, whatever you do, we talked to the doctor, whatever you do, make sure she doesn't get pregnant for a year. Because that blood clot was on its way to the lung. It lodged in the abdomen. If she gets pregnant, you're going to have some real, real serious issues. I said, fine. We go to the little church. We're there. Three months later, the second immaculate conception took place. <laughs> I'm telling you. We'd been careful. I mean, to the point of irritation. I mean, at least I was irritated, if you, if you understand what I'm talking about. And she's pregnant. And she goes down to Stanford. And, you know, she's seeing these doctors and all, because they said there could be some concerns. And I remember um, she'd been to see the doctor and then I went to a church that night, and while I was there, I started getting a splitting headache. Splitting headache. And uh, I popped about three Tylenol, and an hour later it was worth, I popped three more Tylenol. I left early, I went home, Mary had some Tylenol with codeine, I took two of those, uh, went to bed, I woke up at two in the morning, and I was, just, I was, I had a fever, I was chilled, I was, uh, Mary was in bad shape. She couldn't. I said, Mary, I'm just going to run down to the emergency room and get an antibiotic or something. I get down there. I walk in there. It's about 3 o'clock in the morning. You ever walk into an emergency room and see a doctor at 3 in the morning? And the guy's been up for four weeks. <laughs> that guy looked worse than I did. He walked in. He started asking me questions. He started having me do different things. He looked at me. He said, I think you've got meningitis. I said, I don't have meningitis. I can't have meningitis. He said, that's what I think you've got. He said, but we'll know in about 20 minutes. There's two kinds of it, and we'll know. And I said, how do you know? He said, well, we're going to do a spinal tap. And I'd heard of spinal taps. I'm not talking about the rock group. So this sucker gets this horse needle, and he's going to put, and he didn't look real sharp, to be honest with you. And so before he's, it's true, before he's put that in, I said, hey, you know what? I'm a Christian. Why don't we just pray here for a minute? And he said, fine. And I said, Lord, you know, give him wisdom. And, you know, and, and, I, start, and I started praying for missionaries in Africa. I mean, I, I, <laughs> finally, he just put that sucker in there. He comes in a half hour later, and I said, what did you find out? He said, the tests are inconclusive. I said, what does that mean? He said, well, we're going to watch you. For th we're going to keep you in here 72 hours. And we'll know what kind you have. I said, what if it's the worst? He said, we've got to bring your wife and kids in here and they've got to go through the procedure you just went through. <sighs> so the whole time that weekend, I'm in that hospital bed and I'm crying the whole time because I was about, I, I was, it was it. And at the end, and, and you know, you're worried. I'm worried about what if this happens and what if this and what if, you know, my kids have to go through that. I'm just shot. And Monday morning, he walks in and he said, you're okay. Put you on antibiotics. You know, I've been on an IV. He said, you can go home tomorrow. All right. Finally, I had some good news. 
An hour later, Mary walks in, and she looks ashen. And I said, what's wrong? She said, I've just been to see the specialist at Stanford. And he said, Steve, the medicine I've been taking to break the blood clot, he says it has adversely affected our baby. I said, what do you, what do you mean? He said, he said that medicine has, it's, there's a very good chance this child's going to be born deformed. And he said, Have you, I'd like you to consider interrupting the pregnancy. That's what the guy said. Aren't these guys slick? Interrupt it like we'll pick it up again later. <laughs> and she told him, she, and I said, well, and she said, well, I said, well, that's not an option. And he said, well, no, you don't understand. This could be very, very serious. And she said, well, uh, you know, God's the giver of life, and God gave us this child, and that's not our call. And he said, well, you don't understand. And he kept pushing her and pressing her. And finally he said, you don't understand. You're going to have a little monster. And that's what he told her. Guy had a great bedside manner. So here I am in the hospital. My wife comes in. We got to wait now seven months to see what's going to happen. Things come in waves, guys. Things come in twos and threes. And I can't sleep at night. I remember the night I woke up, not with a fever, but in a cold sweat from anxiety and fear because. I, had, I, was, I woke up and I thought, what if Mary dies? And that was, it was such a complicated situation. Because we were meeting with specialists and they're talking about reversing her blood flow and this stuff. I mean, I, it was unbelievable. That's why I went through a depression. Now, I'll tell you something interesting. When I was pastoring in that first church, I'd have people come in, and they would tell me, and they'd have tears, and they'd tell me they were dealing with depression. And, and I didn't know what they were talking about. And you know what basically what I'd say to them? Hey, man, just kind of got to, you know, suck it up and, and get with it. Life's tough. Uh, hundreds of people weren't coming to talk with me because I had no idea what they were going through. Isn't that interesting? I had no clue what depression was. So people come in with depression. Hey, you got me. Um, and then I went through it. And when I was in it, I thought I'd never get out of it. I remember pulling up to a stop sign and looking at the guys around me in their cars and wondering if I'd ever be normal like them again. That's how bad it was. Um, uh, by the way... Uh, Had the labor pains, went into the hospital. Josh was born, and the minute he came out, I heard a boom. And a team of three or four doctors came busting through the door, and they grabbed that kid. And they were all over, and they're checking, they're doing, I mean, I didn't know they were going to come in like that. And I'm just looking, I'm looking. Went on for about two, three minutes. I'm holding Mary's hand. This one doctor looks up and goes, he's fine. One of the things Josh wants to do is to go and visit the doctor <laughs> that wanted to take his life. And, that's, and we'll do that one day. 
we'll go up to Palo Alto and we're going we're gonna to make an appointment with this guy. And Josh is going to ask him why he wanted to kill him. Um, now, I, I, you know why I'm telling you this story? Um, because I think a lot of times when you see... I'm just going to level with you guys. I think a lot of times you see somebody up here and you think, oh, that guy, you know, oh, yeah, they got it. Oh, yeah, that's a pretty easy deal. You know? Um, I don't know, maybe you don't think. I, and here's the other thing. I think a lot of times guys that teach, they don't share their brokenness. And they don't share where they've screwed up. And they don't share what they've been through. You see? But everybody goes through stuff. Hezekiah went through stuff. You're go- now, why are we going through the stuff? Because God wants to equip us, quite frankly, to be ministers. So I'm not, what do you mean a minister? I'm a CPA. You're a minister. Don't you belong to Christ? You're an ambassador of Christ. Haven't you ever asked God to use you? Well, yeah, I have. That's why you're going through what you're going through. You see, when you go through something like that, it deepens you. When you go through something like that, it gives you an ability to connect with someone you couldn't connect with before. You're being broken. You're being conformed to the image of God. As Jesus went to the cross, we're going to go to a cross. Not like he went through, but we are going to suffer, and we're going to get hurt. We're going to be fighting on two or three fronts. And see, that's where some of you guys are. Let me tell you why I'm telling you all this. I'm telling you this to give you hope and to encourage you. Because, you see, it's a normal process that God takes a man through. Nobody goes through unscathed. Nobody gets through without scars. Nobody gets through without broken bones. Everybody gets beat up as you walk the trail of the Christian life and you're in the process of being conformed to the image of Christ. So are you there right now? See, if you're there, it could be you're thinking that you're the only guy that's there. You're not the only guy. There are guys all around you that are in that situation. They might have different circumstances, but they're there. You should understand that you're on track. You should understand that you're in a chapter of life where you're just in a set of waves. And it's dangerous, and it scares you, but there's great opportunity. There's tremendous opportunity. Anybody I see in Scripture that God used, they went through this. Joseph went through it. Daniel went through it. David went through it. Paul went through it. Paul said, you remember our affliction, brethren, in Asia, when we were burdened, catch this, beyond our strength, so that we despaired, even of life. I remember the day when I was in that bedroom, and I was praying, and I said, Lord, if you would just, if I knew I could get in that car, and you would send an 18-wheel semi across the median and hit me head on and take me, I'd do it. I wanted to die. Now, I wouldn't do that because of my wife and kids. I wasn't going to run out on them like that. But that's how bad it hurt. This is where Hezekiah was, guys. So see, we're reading this. Let's go back to 2 Chronicles 28. Let's wrap this up. See, we read this stuff and we blow by it and we're reading these biographies. And, and, 
And what, or 2 Chronicles 32. And, and what happens, you see, is we read this stuff on the page. Verse 24, in those days, Hezekiah became mortally ill. Let me tell you something, he was devastated. His kingdom was threatened, his life was threatened. Go over, if you would, to 2 Kings chapter 20, real quick. 2 Kings 20. Let me get to the right book. I, I've, got a, I've got two different Bibles now I'm working out of up here. Yeah, I've got a split personality. Uh, look at verse 20 of 2 Kings 20. In those days, Hezekiah became mortally ill. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, came to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, set your house in order, for you shall die and not live. Boy, that's sobering. Then he turned his face to the wall. Why do you think he did that? You know why I think he did? He didn't want anybody to see him crying. There's no other reason he turned his face to the wall. Because when we cry as men, we're embarrassed. Because that's not what we normally do. But I'm going to tell you something. Every guy has a time in his life when the only smart thing to do is to cry. Either that or you can just suppress it and get an ulcer. I love what Max Licato said one time. He says, you know, God gave men tear ducts too. You know, there are certain things women have that you don't have. But your wife's got tear ducts, and so do you. You know what tears do sometimes? They decompress the tight chest. He turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord, saying, Remember now, O Lord, I beseech thee how I have walked before thee in truth and with a whole heart and have done what is good in thy sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. That's where some of you guys are. That's where I was. And it came about before Isaiah had gone out of the middle court that the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Return and say to Hezekiah, the leader of my people, Thus says the Lord, the God of your father David, I have heard your prayer. I've seen your tears. Behold, I will heal you. On the third day you shall go up to the house of the Lord, and I will add 15 years to your life, and I will deliver you in this city from the hand of the king of Assyria, and I will defend this city for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. Then Isaiah said, Take a cake of figs, and they took it and laid it on the boil, and he recovered. You know, God can heal with a word, or God can heal through medicine. This was a medicine that they used. Uh, if there's a medicine that will help you, thank the Lord for it. Take it from him. Verse 8, Hezekiah said to Isaiah, What will be the sign that the Lord will heal me, that I shall go up to the house of the Lord the third day? And Isaiah said, This shall be the sign to you from the Lord, that the Lord will do the thing that he has spoken. Shall the shadow go forward ten steps or go back ten steps? Hezekiah answered, it is easy for the shadow to decline ten steps, but no. But the shadow turned backward ten steps. And Isaiah the prophet cried to the Lord, and he brought the shadow on the stairway back ten steps, by which it had gone down on the stairway of Ahaz. It's an amazing story. God healed him. Oh, oh and by the way, the Assyrians camped outside the wall. God killed them, and he was delivered. 
Isn't that amazing? Some of you guys are thinking, I wish that happened to me. Wouldn't it be great if that were to happen to me right now? See, when you're in a deal like that, all you want is to get out. Um, if God were to do something like that for you, what would be your response? Can I tell you what Hezekiah's response was? He became proud. And that was his fourth crisis. Can we go seven more minutes, guys? Huh? What are you going to say? No? <laughs> I want to show you this real quick. All right? This won't take long. But this is an amazing thing. God heals him. Turn the page. In my Bible, I'm turning the page. Look at verse 12, wherever verse 12 is on your page. And you read about uh, this guy from Babylon who sends letters to Hezekiah for he heard that Hezekiah had been sick. And Hezekiah, so he's healed now, okay? He's healed. The Assyrians have been, he's out of the woods. He's out of the difficult time. He's in the chips. Uh, now, keep your finger there and go back over to 2 Chronicles real quick. We're going we're gonna to flip back. Go to 2 Chronicles, what is it, 32 we're in? Yeah. Go back to 2 Chronicles. Because, you see, what God did for Hezekiah, he tested him and took him through this difficult thing. But at the same time, God was prospering him and God was being good to him. Look at uh, verse 27 of 2 Chronicles 32. Now Hezekiah had immense riches and honor, and he made for himself treasuries for silver, gold, precious stones, spices, shields, and all kinds of valuable articles. Storehouses also for the produce of grain, wine, and oil. Pins for all kinds of cattle and sheepfolds for the flock. And he made cities for himself. He acquired flocks and herds in abundance, for God had given him very great wealth. It was Hezekiah who stopped the upper outlet of the waters of Gihon and directed them to the west side of the city of David. This guy had an amazing public works project on, on, on the water of, of Jerusalem that they never had before. And then look what it says at the end of that verse. And Hezekiah prospered in all that he did. Now keep your finger there and go back to 2 uh, Kings 20. This guy sends him a letter from Babylon. They come and visit him. Now look at verse 13 of 2 Kings 20. And Hezekiah listened to them and showed them all his treasure house, what we just read, the silver and gold and the spices and the precious oil and the house of his armor and all that he had found in his treasury. There was nothing in his house nor in all his dominion that Hezekiah did not show them. Showed him everything. Then Isaiah the prophet came to Hezekiah and said, what did these men say and where, they, where, where have they come from? Hezekiah said, they've come from a far country from Babylon. And he said, what have they seen in your house? Hezekiah answered, they have seen all that is in my house. There is nothing among my treasuries that I have not shown them. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and all that your fathers have laid up in store for this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left. And some of your sons who shall issue from you, whom you shall beget, shall be taken away, and they shall become officials in the palace of the king of Babylon. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word of the Lord which you have spoken is good, for he thought, Is it not so if there shall be peace and truth in my days? Uh, you see this guy. I mean, all this stuff's going to happen, and he says, Well, as long as it doesn't happen on my watch. What had God done for this guy? God had saved him from Assyria. God had healed him. And what was his response? He became proud. So this guy from Babylon, why did he show him everything? 
Why did he do it? Because he was proud. You say, well, how do you know that? Go back to 2 Chronicles. Flip back over to 32. Look at verse 31. And even in the matter of the envoys, envoys of the rulers of Babylon, who sent to him to inquire of the wonder that had happened in the land, God left him alone only to test him that he might know all that was in his heart. See, sometimes, guys, the toughest test is not the test of physical sickness. Sometimes the toughest test is not the test of going through bankruptcy. The toughest test is prosperity. Because prosperity tends to make us proud. Wiersbe says this, and he nails it. Listen to this. I'm done here. I got three minutes, don't I? Listen. Hezekiah weathered the invasion and the illness, but he capitulated to pride. It began when he failed to thank God for sparing his life. And apparently, even God's chastening did not cure him. Isn't that interesting? Um, look at verse 25 of 2 Chronicles 32. It says, but after God healed him and gave him a sign, but Hezekiah gave no return for the benefit he received because his heart was proud, therefore wrath came on him and on Judah and Jerusalem. This guy did not watch over his heart. Instead of being thankful to God for what God had done, he saw all this stuff and he began to be proud of it and take credit for it. The extent of his wealth and the praises, Wiersbe says, of the visiting dignitaries, met Hezekiah proud and God had to deal with him. We have learned that if Satan cannot conquer us when he comes as a lion, as it says in 1 Peter 5, 8, he will come again to us as a serpent and deceive us. That's 2 Corinthians 11. You may be in greater danger when things are going well than when you are fighting a battle, so keep alert. So what is pride? G.K. Chesterton said this. It can be maintained that the evil of pride consists in being out of proportion to the universe. Let me say that again. So what's a proud man? Chesterton says it can be maintained that the evil of pride consists in being out of proportion to the universe. Hezekiah was out of proportion to the universe. He thought that stuff was because of what he had done. The riches and the Bible says it is he who gives you the power to make wealth. Instead of giving glory to God, he had to... See, he thought he was bigger than he was, and he lost all perspective. Teddy Roosevelt, great, great president, right up at the top. One night before retiring to bed, Roosevelt and his friend, the naturalist William Beebe, stepped outside the White House, and they looked up into the night sky. They were searching for a tiny patch of light near the constellation Pegasus. Together, they would say in unison, that is the spiral galaxy in Andromeda. It is as large as our Milky Way. It is one of 100 million galaxies. It consists of 100 billion suns, each larger than our own sun. After a moment of silent awe, Roosevelt turned to his companion and said, Now I think we are small enough. Let's go to bed. 
That's how a great man dealt with pride. Oh, by the way, one of Roosevelt's favorite writers was G.K. Chesterton. Got to watch our hearts, guys. You guys, things are going well. Aren't you grateful things are going well? You're in danger. You're in danger if things are going well, just like Hezekiah was. When life is falling apart, we're desperate. When life's going well, we tend to wander. Let's bow and let's check our hearts. Lord, uh, we're in spiritual battle. You tell us that in Ephesians 6. And when life's falling apart and when the lion's roaring in our face, we're just trying to survive and we get very, very close to you. Lord, we hear this and we, 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 it's just wonderful you gave this guy 15 more years. You don't always do that. You healed him and gave him 15 more years. Sometimes when people have terminal disease, you heal them by taking them to heaven. We, we don't understand your ways on these issues. We're not God. But Lord, something that we can understand is this. When we are in a period of ease, we are at danger. And we are at danger from ourselves. Would you help us to watch over our hearts? Would you help us, Lord, to check our pride? Lord, would, would you help us getting bigger, thinking of ourselves greater than we are? Lord, we don't want to put ourselves in a position where you have to whittle us down to size. May we whittle ourselves down. May we make ourselves small, which we are, and acknowledge that before you and acknowledge your greatness and your vastness and your majesty and that everything we have comes from you. We may need to go home and uh, maybe we can't see the stars tonight, but we sure need to think about them. And that will give us perspective. And that will keep us from pride. Give us grateful hearts, we pray again. Don't let us murmur. Don't let us complain. Let us be thankful men. No matter where we are, because Lord, if we're in the hard times, you'll bring us out. But you're going to do your work first. Do a complete work in our hearts, Lord. For those of us in tough circumstances... Teach us every lesson that you have for us to learn. We don't want to go back and have to go to summer school here on this deal again. Make us teachable. Make us smart. Make us obedient. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.